0: You know he had 20 children and all of them were in his crew raging against the machine hey what's up everybody this is dave
1: thanks for joining bob and i for our podcast thriving in dystopia and even though we always try and be professionals sometimes we swear so just know that going in Thanks for calling Colorado Cinnamon. Basemar Twix, this is Richard Hidalgo speaking.
0: I miss that guy. I wonder where he went. He had a great couple of months working for... I don't know what corporation that was, but it was at the Basemar Cinnamon. (laughs) (laughs) And he took all the phone calls down there. People don't... Oh my gosh. A lot of friends don't necessarily realize that we worked at a movie theater maybe 20 years ago. And... (sighs) We had some wild times and I think it was just three months of work. Yeah, it was probably one of my all-time favorite jobs.
1: I tell people it was my favorite job. We started working there when Titanic was playing, but it was like a old movie theater. So Titanic had been playing there for like four years, right? That's
0: right. It was the $2 uh, movie theater. Yeah. Can you imagine paying $2 to go see a movie? It was incredible. You can't even buy a movie to watch off YouTube for $2. Yeah, it's it's a steal. <laughs>
1: it's a it's like half off. Get your copy of Titanic for $2. Um, yeah, what a wild time. I'll just tell a few quick stories. Please. Day two, we both got hired. Somehow, they hired us both at the same time. And on the second day of work, we showed up. And there was no one there. The doors were just shut shut, locked, closed, couldn't go anywhere. Turns out everyone who had been working at that theater had been, what's it called? Laundering money or stealing somehow? I don't know. They were just like um, skimming off the top. Embezzling. Yeah. Yeah. So it was was the old embezzlement theater and they decided to fire everybody but you, me, and Rachel. Remember Rachel?
0: Oh, yeah. Yes, they do. Didn't you go to high school with her? I did. <laughs> Maybe she listens to the podcast.
1: Yeah. So within two days, we went from the new hires to the longest work or the second and third longest working members of
0: the the Basemark Twin Theater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The like corrupt manager hired us and then got fired the next day. But somehow our jobs were saved. Like you, you would have thought that that would have corrupted us too. But. Nope, they wanted us. <laughs> yeah, and
1: not only did they want us, but they let us. They told We told all of our friends that we that they could come work for us, right? And yeah. we got like Mike Bishop, friend of the cast, Jeff Sawaki, Albert Cook, and just We just like we're running the joint down there. Yeah. <laughs> How did it go sour? Why did we ever quit? I don't know. I mean, it was great. It was awesome when you got had two movies that had like similar runtimes because they would end at the same time, and then you would go clean both theaters, and then you would you know check in the new guests or the what do you call them Um, cinema goers, and then you would we just played video games for like like we wasted all of our money on quarters for nineteen forty five strikers, the best arcade
0: game of all time. We didn't have to buy lunch because. Subway was next door and we had a deal with Subway that we got free subs if they got free movies. Is that the deal? Yeah. And
1: I don't think I ever saw it. I never gave a free movie to a Subway employee. They were like, this is the worst deal ever. Who wants to go see Titanic? It's been in that theater for four years. Do you remember any other
0: good good movies at the theater? I remember in the first week also, um, American Psycho was in that theater. Just such a... Uh outrageous movie that i always remember that (laughs) yeah i did eventually go see apocalypse
1: now the redo of that the redux as it's called i and i remember what is it called the big kahuna at some point Yeah, that was there with kevin spacey yeah and something with rooms like another classic movie it doesn't matter (laughs) god this is just memory lane sorry i just Started laughing this morning, thinking about how we used to answer the phone instead of saying Colorado Cinema Base Mart Twin, we'd say Colorado Cinnamon Base Mart Twix. <laughs> nobody, <laughs> nobody was <laughs> a brutal, any the wiser. A
0: brutal inside joke that only you and I thought was funny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: what a deep dive.
0: Oh man, well, Babo, how are you? Doing okay. It is February, in a new month, and. Yeah. I just, am um, bombarded by how busy I am teaching. I'm halfway through the quarter though. Finished week five of 10, you know, and you know, I would, I'll say like, I love the, the classes and I love, you know, when I'm having interactions with students, but I'm just burned out. Just, it's too much. It's just too much. And it lets me know that you can still definitely get burned out doing something you loved. So, hmm. yeah, but um, I think just one foot in front of the next, and hopefully make it to the end of the quarter. Looking forward to that. How about yourself, Dave? Yeah, I.
1: It's funny. I just listened to a episode on burnout on the Brené Brown podcast. Uh, Unlocking us, I believe is is the name of it, and. Yeah, I don't really feel burnout right now. I just feel like I've been full throttle, and that's just where my life's at right now. Just going, like it's it's funny. Sometimes I feel like teaching is a sprint where you have to like just go full out all the time. But it's also kind of like a marathon, and because you you have to do it for nine months, and and then you get like this beautiful three month long break where you can do whatever the fuck you want to do and but you have to soak that all in and you're it's just like feast and famine you know it's like you have to be able to like let that recharge like let you go for the whole year um and it's like the people that can really be a camel can really thrive in the the teaching realm so I don't know. Yeah. I sometimes another thing I was thinking about today is we I was listening to another podcast, um This American Life, and they did a like 25 year retrospective. So they did like a look back on 25 years. But rather than look back as to like the last 25 years of their podcast, they said what is it like to be a 25 year old? And that was like for me, that was like 12 years ago and for you you know like 15 years ago which seems wild and i i got caught thinking what this show would be like if we were 25 years old like if we were young lads i feel like it would be a really bad show thriving in dystopia do you get that feeling
0: <laughs> i don't know yeah i'd love to know what teenagers would think about this show or ourselves as teenagers as well we do have at least one teenage fan. You know nice, yeah, we do, yeah, you former student,
1: yeah, I feel like this show is pretty quality,
0: but I don't know. Are we losing touch with the youth, Bob? like it's gonna happen at some be- point, right? Hopefully, that's where the dystopian rainbow comes back to help us out. <laughs> yeah, wow, I don't know i'm
1: I think that we are wiser and we have a lot to give. And because we're both teachers, we definitely like stay in touch with, you know, the trends and whatnot, but there's going to be a point where it's going to feel pretty dated, but it's hard to know. It's hard to know how dated it already feels like how old we are.
0: Yeah. That's a great question. Like, do you know when you're dated? Like, when do you know that? Yeah. I feel like maybe I have some feelings of that in the ways that I listen to old music, you know, 80s and 90s hmm. music, but then again, that music becomes popular again. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you know, as Lester Bangs said, you and
1: me, Bob, we're uncool and we'll always be uncool. <laughs> so, who who cares, you know? I will I would like to talk about one more thing, Babo. Yeah. I go for am it. so curious to get some football
0: predictions oh, the on the gridiron. gridiron. <laughs> oh, with the Super Bowl coming up, yeah, isn't it coming up in a few hours? Oh, is it today? It's today. My God, <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> it's it's ironic because I I have been watching football, but it's um, these old clips of how the Jacksonville Jaguars almost went to the Super Bowl in twenty seventeen and then collapsed incredibly, and you know, three years later, they they went one in fifteen this season but man that's me too i watched that same clip that was amazing tom brady though yeah exactly That, that was a great secret base yeah you just it's just wild to see what tom brady's doing and tom brady's back in the super bowl you can never count him out you just can never count that guy out um i think the chiefs are an excellent team and would be my favorites um i guess I would. I, I'm thinking the Chiefs are probably going to win, but if the Bucks keep it close and keep it close going into the fourth quarter, then that's when you're going to see the Bucks take it with another Tom Brady comeback. How would yourself do? Mm, yeah, I,
1: you know, kind of hate Tom Brady. And SNL did a bit about uh, when they, you know, SNL's back for a new season, and they did a bit. Where they talked about all the things that are not working in America, you know, like this, you know, the Supreme Court or Congress or vaccine distribution. And they interviewed a bunch of people, like, and just got a bunch of laughs. And Tom Brady is the only thing that really works that's American made, you know? And I feel like that feels a little bit true to me, unfortunately, because I, God, I just hate, he's like a trumper, you know? Yeah, he is. And he is like basically everything I despise in a sports star, like a white man that thinks white men should have all the privilege in the world and they're entitled. And he's like extremely good looking. He is just the most winning and probably the greatest quarterback of all time. And it's just like, damn, this is like, it's brutal. You hate to see that. Um, but at the same time, I do kind of like his story, you know, Michigan guy goes on draft or seventh round draft pick should have never done anything. And he becomes the greatest quarterback of all time. Yeah. That's just
0: incredibly remarkable.
1: Yeah. I have spent my whole, like, since I've, you know, the last 15 years, I've really rooted against Tom Brady and the Patriots, but now I'm kind of rooting for him and I'm just like, dang,
0: I think Mahomes is way cooler though. So. I need to stick with that. Yeah. And our Cleveland Browns almost upset the Chiefs. Could have been the Browns. <laughs> yeah, that's true, huh? Yep. Dang.
1: Well, either either way, it's um, at least it's not Blake Bortles. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is, uh, Bortles was immortalized in the TV show The Good Place. So I always think about that TV show when Blake Bortles comes up. <laughs> Oh really? How's he immortalized <laughs> the
1: I, the good place with uh, Veronica Mars?
0: Yeah, um, Kristen Bell and Ted Ted, dancing. Ted dancing. Um, one of the characters is like this, kind of like young dude from Jacksonville whose life is going nowhere, but he just loves the Jaguars and he especially <laughs> loves Blake Bortles because the show started in twenty sixteen. <laughs> oh my
1: gosh, that's funny. Yeah. That's
0: great. Have you uh, have you seen like all four or five seasons of that show? Yeah, I think I have. Yeah, it's a good one. I, I enjoy that show.
1: <clears throat> nice. I saw the first like five or six episodes and I was like, yeah, it's fine. But yeah, I'm sure it got its legs under it in the second season, right? As they always do. Yeah, I
0: think so. There you go.
1: Any more things you need or you ready, ready to get the show on the
0: road? Let's do it, Dave. Yeah. I was gonna sort of introduce where we've been and then hand it over to you to talk about today's theme. I was thinking we're trying to have some continuity from episode to episode, and the you know we, we developed some ideas around you know why why one might avoid um and get into avoidance patterns comes from like pretty normal, maybe even healthy places of trying to like um you know not like hold one's resources and um it yeah it's like maybe partially healthy but also like our mind plays tricks on us a little bit like that the confrontation won't go well um so mm-hmm. yeah and then it becomes deeper and more challenging as time goes on i think so We also talked about like finding the courage to, to make the confrontation. And we also acknowledge like some, some things can't, or like there's some things are too hard or, um, you know, make sense not to confront, but when there is a need to, the courage is so important and, um, yeah, we'll probably in the future go more into that, like how to build that, um, that I think might require a little bit more depth um so we've talked a lot about about this issue at the interpersonal level but we have also hinted at larger confrontations as well so i think those were some of the ideas we were playing with i wondered if i missed anything important you could add that dave and also just take us to today's episode
1: yeah i so far i know the season's been, you know, this is like sort of the halfway point or right around there. And I'm a little surprised with the path that it's gone down so far. In a lot of ways, I expected to feel a little more at home with the the feeling of avoidance and find it to be like not more, more in the gray area where, where when you should avoid and when you should confront and like finding that to be, like, more gray. But so far, I've I've been really drawn to this idea of uh, confronting. And I feel like that has been a real surprise for me. And especially because I feel like I'm also the king of just, like, running from my problems. I'm sure that there's a lot of people that can relate to that statement. Um, because a lot of times it feels a lot easier just to take a step back and you know push away from push away from the hard and we definitely acknowledge that there's like reasons why it's important to do that i think that was what we were getting after getting at last week is like yeah, like there's definitely reasons why we do that. And there's definitely some benefit to that. But I think in the end, if you're like le- leading a life where you're not approaching the difficult tasks, more often than not, there, I think you're going to be falling short. Not as a human so much as just like I feel like there'll be a lot of disappointment. Um, at least that's how I'm feeling i shouldn't put words into the listeners earbuds um because yeah in the end we recognize how much courage and time and effort and energy it takes to even have small confrontations you know and it's so much easier when things go smooth but it it can be so much better when we confront yeah i don't know i'm probably just recapped exactly what you were saying babo but i feel like it's nice to have a little bit of a Getting our head on straight before we go into the next one, you know?
0: Yeah, just to try to do that through path from episode to episode.
1: Yeah, man, walk us on that journey. Yeah, so today, this is an episode that we definitely knew we were going to get after at some point, but we have kind of been thinking about this idea of bringing avoidance to whiteness and avoidance to the discussion of racism and we you know at thriving and bob and i both live a life where we believe that we live in a white supremacist state and to acknowledge the the two the two big genocides that have happened on U S soil over the last 500 years. One is the genocide that continues against native peoples. You know, you can walk that lineage way back, but all the way up until, you know, the water protectors is the most recent national news on the genocide towards the native peoples of the, you know, North America. But the other big one is slavery and, all everything that's wrapped up in that, and I'm not gonna like walk through every little piece of it and the atrocities of slavery in the United States, but you know, I think the the big things to note are how you know where we're at right now, and I think I feel like we are sitting here in this time. You know, last week was Black Lives Matter, life at at schools, and you know it's black history month and i think really what's the important thing to note about all this is that you know we are living in the prison industrial complex that you know michelle alexander coined as the the new jim crow and it is just the same story over and over again since this country's inception and i guess really what we're going to be talking about a little bit is um, Ibram X Kendi, and a little bit of anti-racism and the idea of avoidance mixed in with
0: that. So I just wanted to set the scene there, Bob. What did I miss? Um. Yeah, I think you did a very commendable job there. This, uh, oh, commending. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, uh, yeah, appreciate you setting the stage, and I maybe would just emphasize and you said this, but like that these atrocities are built into both the, the state and the culture of the United States and that there have been social movements that have worked to address this and have made important, you know, both structural and cultural um, inroads to fighting white supremacy. However, those dominant power structures, those core structures of that racism is a system that upholds whiteness and that works through whiteness and anti-blackness, um, at its sort of core. Um, and it's integrated other forms of racism into that, um, that modality, uh, you know, of um integrating indigenous people and asian people in, into this like othering um you know not white paradigm so we are left with this you know slavery chattel slavery was abolished although not fully abolished it morphed into the prison system however the the rationale of whiteness and racism was left and continues to be very dominant. And so we are trying to focus on how does whiteness perpetuate white supremacy? And we have come to understand through research, through the book, you know, Ibram Kendi and, and other references that one way one way that whiteness operates is to um, sort of create an illusion that the system's not that bad or that racism is happening somewhere else. And um, there are a lot of sort of carrots for lack of a better word that, that stick in the stick and the carrot, carrots for white people to n- both just not take on issues of race and to um, like focus on that and minimize how how bad it is in you know for for people of color so all that is sort of in this rubric of avoidance avoiding taking on racism and so I think for me to pose that question, you have to acknowledge that racism is a a thing before you can avoid it so I think that people who don't acknowledge it I don't think they're even avoiding it. They are in some even more twisted place, I, I would say. Um, so for me, this conversation is like for white people who understand there's something going on, but avoiding a deepening of their own need to, you know, deepen their pra- practice of, of taking it on. How, how does that sound to you? Um, is that how you're understanding this?
1: Yeah, I would say for starters, I really like this idea that you, you didn't quite say it like this, but it's kind of like baked into our culture um, or like woven in or it's like, it's so integral to what US society is. It's like, it's like one of the core pillars that we built on top of is this idea of racism and I think that that to me is at the heart of why it's important to think of racism in terms of avoidance, right? And I feel like when we were growing up in the '80s and '90s, we were growing up in this world of colorblindness, right? And that was kind of the the what we were taught. And I don't know, like, I mean, to for a little more context, we grew up in Boulder, Colorado, right? Which is like ninety percent white, extremely affluent, and maybe my numbers are a little wrong, but and it it was it's just been like, um, like uh, to the extreme. Like every year, it gets even more white and more affluent and more just like bubbleized, right? And I feel like we grew up in this world where we were taught and i think this is what was like being taught in the 90s was that like under like the clinton administration that like we need to be we need to not see the race of another human because like we're we're trying to live in this like post racism world which is just so horrible and i think it like in a lot of ways that that mentality this this colorblindness mentality that was so pervasive in the US in the 90s has led us to a spot where we are now because we avoided and ignored and we pushed away rather than confronting and confronting what is like the atrocities that are at hand right like the war on drugs was through the roof and this is when this is when you know Yes, schools were trying to be integrated and like the world was really at a at this point it's like being super segregated through all kinds of political action and um, police activity and imprisonment right And so we get to this point where we get to all this like all these white people that are just like ignoring the fact that we live in a racist state and the the state has this freedom to operate to the nth degree where it's like becoming hyper capitalist and hyper racist. And like it is just like putting this line between it's just like driving a wedge in between the the world that we want to see and the world that we're living in. And yeah, I'll just leave it there. But I just feel like that is at the heart of what I want to get at after a little bit today.
0: Yeah, I think that is important. Rooting it in uh, ideology of colorblindness, um, that is a framework of understanding society that has been around for a long time, but really took off in the 1970s, and we're still in it. We're still, I mean, I think the Obama and then Orange Menace years changed that, and it's like that has morphed the way. Like, I think that it's more complex now, but yeah, when growing up, there was definitely that idea of like, don't talk about race. Don't like mention a person's race, um, to do that would be racist and like at a policy level, like any policy that targets racial background, it is not productive that there should be like these one size fits all approaches to social issues. So all that is pretty pretty deep and, and growing up in that, in a like progressive white bubble of Boulder. Um, yeah, I think we, I certainly also took that in and d- drank that Kool-Aid and um, it's been a process of um, looking at that and trying to un- undo that. Um, And yeah, I mean, I guess that's like, first step you know that for a lot of folks it's um i mean that is like a long process i don't think like i'm not done with that process and i've been like working on that for 15 years or so um but it's always a great reminder to that we need to be doing that and i think that's part of the not avoiding and yeah again this idea of whiteness I, i suppose needs a little bit more of a definition um that whiteness is a social construction it is a invention of people namely of people about four to five hundred years ago europeans um the european elite helped to create this idea of whiteness because there weren't white people then there were just people from different um parts of the world and you know different parts of europe um and the major forms of power were around religion and and money. Um, so, yeah, the creation of whiteness took a while in the New World, in the Western Hemisphere, but it solidified. And um, in that solidification, poor Europeans traded their ethnic backgrounds and their solidarity their potential solidarity with indigenous and black people for this this illusion of whiteness you know that they were um something better and for many of these poor europeans it didn't really help them economically but it did give them this psychological boost uh, within you know like at least i'm not a person of color is what people white people have been telling themselves for a long time, you know, and that, that prevents this possibility for class solidarity, you know, like around, you know, poverty or like that, that we are not the 1%, for example. Um, So that, yeah, I guess that reminds me of William Barber is on the, the poor people's movement and that's a current issue like campaign that I think is a positive one that, Takes this like very race conscious approach to social issues, and that's something we can link to in the the show notes. Anyways, back to this idea of whiteness. This so this whiteness is you know an illusion; it doesn't exist, but it um, is something that the country, the United States, is heavily invested in and promoted to European immigrants um, and. You know, even our, our family, um, when they immigrated here, like our, our dad being Slovak, Slovaks were not white at that point in history, but during our grandparents, um, era of raising our, our uncle and our dad, they were granted more access to whiteness. And that had to do with, um, s- making sure that um, like white supremacy stayed the norm in the United States when um there were possibilities of of changing that through social movements of the nineteen twenties so yeah, that is connected to the American dream, like just you know don't worry about these other people, just worry about working hard and and i so I think that's where this the avoidance of this this history comes in. Yeah, just go, go find a job, work hard, get yourself a house in the suburbia. That message, uh, still pervasive, you know, when we were growing up. And so the other side of this, I guess I want to say is that the because it's so deep, these structures threaten humanity. They're not just um, awful in the ways that people of color are treated in this country by the systems and the people involved, but also the um these are the systems that create the republican party create um you know these deeper forms or more virulent forms of white supremacy that uh yeah are are very really a threat to humanity a, a an existential threat even to white people so um it's in white people's both moral interests but also their long term material interest to do something about this and not avoid things, but we still avoid things, you know, um, my own, like I avoid it. I don't do enough. Um, I, sh- with that, this in mind, you know, this knowledge in mind, we should be raging in against the machine every day and, um, making sure that this ends soon, um, because we just don't have that much more time and people are, are suffering. So that, I'm interested in going a bit deeper in that, uh, but yeah, I just spoke a lot. Sorry, Dave. Uh, let me pass it to you. Pass
1: the old carrot stick over this way, Babo. Yeah, I mean that was awesome, and I liked that. I think that it's two things that I want to hit on. Is one that it's not. It's like not just people of color that will get more if we can become anti-racist as a nation you know it's not just for their benefit it's for white people's benefit too and i think we all know that but it's like so hard to like that is the eternal question right can we spend our life raging against the machine in the street to try and create social change because it feels like like you said we have so many carrots that get dangled in front of us and more often than not we have to like make a living we have to you know and to make a living you have to have a car right to to get to work and you have to like pay your car bill and then you have to so you get like entangled into the capitalist web of like there's a lot of freedom with money but there's a lot of constraint with money and the more you have the more you're like tied up into this whole system and then the more you're tied up into this system the less you want it to fail right and in a lot of ways we need it to fail for it to like for social change to happen we saw so much social change happen during the start of the pandemic right and yeah building on that is what's necessary but the more we return to normalcy is like there's a lot of fear for me in that like with this idea of the vaccine i want people to be healthy and i want people to have like i don't want i'm yeah i'm covid is very scary but i also am like scared of this return to like the normal because i feel like we've made some progress and i don't want that to stop and i yeah it's pretty easy with the more carrots you get dangled in front of you, the less you want to like be raging against the machine. It's easier to avoid the the problems, the inherent problems that are so baked into our society. So it's good to have these conversations because in the end, what it does is it like for me, and I know that well, we have a, you know, a few people will be like, yeah, this is right. Yeah. Like, I don't, I want to like remain vigilant and remain ready and like to have this in like, the more you hear this, the better off I think you are. Like the more you hear this conversation of confronting racism and becoming anti, like being, living anti-racist, anti-racistly. Um, so yeah. And you know, this I don't really want to blow this up into every topic necessarily, but I do want to at least make mention of like, this is not just a problem with racism, right? This is a problem with climate change because it's the same exact issue, right? It's like, we have all of our stuff, our cars and our electricity and our like beautiful plastic toys. And when we don't see the end effects of like where, like if we're not, confronted with the pacific gyre every day then it's like we're not seeing this giant trash island then it's easier to push that away and it's easier to live with the all these beautiful carrot sticks than it is to yeah to confront some of what we need to do to see dramatic social change
0: yeah that point is Why I think we also avoid because of when we start to understand these systems, they, we understand them and how powerful and pervasive, huge they are. And like this question of what can I do? What can I do about these epic questions? Um, I'm just one person I think comes up. And that's a, that's totally real. And um, yeah, I, there's no easy answer to that one. I think where you know I've been to so many anti-racism trainings, and a lot of them, at least in the early days, would emphasize more like interpersonal racism, and you know to be aware of microaggressions and aware of space that I take up as a white person. And I think that's all super good. And I. I'm really grateful for all those trainings. What I also want is like a little bit more in the doing something on the macro level or some of like scaling it up a little bit. And um, why this is so pressing on me in my mind this week is I watched this great Showtime series called The Good Lord Bird, which follows the final years of John Brown, the abolitionist. As played by Ethan Hawke. It's really good. Mm. And, you know, John Brown understood racism in these terms and waged war for, you know, half his life for the last 25 to 30 years of his life. And, you know, he had 20 children and all of them were in his crew raging against the machine. Um, and, you know, John Brown has like his issues and is, is certainly not perfect but I do think there is a need for a little bit more John Brown out of white people you know including myself I that that fire he there's a funny scene early on he's like shown to be sweet to animals and he has like this his rabbit in front of him and he's like does your heart burn for justice and it's uh, a <laughs> it's great you know it's like when your heart just burns for justice like can do things like what john brown did and um you know i'm not advocating for people to like martyr themselves or anything like that but just this like courage and to give our lives more towards the the struggle of endi- ending white supremacy and racism and um That's just a a question I've been holding this week. Um, You know, not just with this week, but in watching that movie. Yeah.
1: Well, there's a a couple more things that I wanted to bring up. I do one of the big discussions that's been happening that I feel some positivity towards, and I don't know. Uh, I'm also curious to hear your reaction a little bit. Is this idea of equity versus equality. I feel like that's been some, there's been some positive steps with conversations around that in recent times, basically. And I feel like one of the things that I want to, there's this quote from Kirk, Kimberly Crenshaw, and I'm sure I've talked about it at some point, but I just want to read it because I kind of feel like it gets to the heart of equity and why it's so important and why we need to have like an equ- equity mindset as opposed to an equality mindset. And I f- I, I'll just read it. It goes, treating different things the same can generate as much inequality as treating the same things differently.
0: That's great. That's a great quote. Oh yeah, I fully embrace that. I like never use the word equality anymore or try not to and try to, when I can teach exactly that, like taking equity or I I like the liberation approach. Um, We don't want everyone to be treated equally by a awful system, a system that's on fire. We want to like dismantle that system that's on fire. That's the the liberation approach. But I also like equity. Um, And I think for certain audiences, the equity, that notion of equity is a good move away from equality. Um, But yeah, that that word equality um, is both like dangerous in thought. And and then the systems themselves sort of re like co-opted them and like it, it doesn't. It's not something to 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 strive for that's not gonna end these systems. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Can you explain a little bit more about liberation? Cause I like and are you talking about uh liberation in forms of education or like just like a liberatory stance to like yeah. a philosophical it, it,
0: outlook? It, I think it's like a framework liberation. And then it could—it's certainly in the realm of education. There's this teaching network called uh, Teaching for Abolition. That's a liberation teaching network. Uh, The the visual is, you know, I think this is shows up a lot. There's like this cartoon of like maybe a man, an adolescent, and a young person, like a young kid, and they're at like a baseball game behind a fence, and the equality is like giving them all the same size box and still like, the, especially the little kid can't see. Um, and then the equity approach is giving the kid a bigger box and giving the adolescents a median box and not giving the adult a box at all. And so that's kind of like, a, you know, maybe some form of reparation. So I think that's definitely positive. And then the liberation approach is removing the wall, and that's the the metaphor. So, where the wall is the the metaphor for the the system that is preventing everyone. Um, so that would be the liberation approach to taking on that system, not just like, um, yeah, giving some more of us. Like, for example, like the prison system, we don't want like slightly nicer places for people of color in prison. You know, we want to like dismantle that system itself. Um, And that would be the liberation approach. Maybe in the education, we don't want like more tutoring for kids of color to take the standardized tests in order to like get funding from the source. We want like all that gone. We don't want like funding connected to test taking. Um, we want like schools and communities to have more power and not lack of funding. So that, that would be like the liberation approach. Yeah, that's great. And I think
1: when I'm, the metaphor is that like the kids and the adults and the teenagers are standing on the box to look over the wall to see the baseball game. Is that right?
0: Yeah. And they're, but they're still like on the outside, you know? Yeah. Right. That makes more sense. Yeah. Those are.
1: All really good metaphors, Bob. I think that explains it a lot more. Yeah, I think that we, you know, just to bring it back in, I feel like we were living in a world in the like, you know, the seventies, eighties, nineties. That's a world of equality, right? Striving towards equality. I feel like we're living in a world right now that's striving towards equity, which definitely feels better, but. I definitely feel like for me, there's something missing. And I feel like I like that idea of striving towards a world of liberation, you know? So anyhow, I feel like that seems like a good spot to leave it off at Babo.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm excited to like, think about this and like, did we get further in terms of praxis for white people into to not avoiding fighting racism? I think maybe, but it's probably like, Worthy to revisit it at some point, but I agree. I think we it's time for the dystopian rainbow. Yeah. I feel like I will say, Bob, that
1: that it's good for us as a show, especially because, you know, Thriving is a show that is hosted by two white men. And it's important. I feel like we do bring up the topic of whiteness about You know, once every eight to ten episodes, you know, where we're like, that's like the majority of what we're discussing. You know what I mean? So it feels good to have a show. I don't know if we're going to like, I think we both know we're not going to solve anything. Right. But I think that as we continue this conversation, it feels important to both of us. And yeah. So I like that. Yeah. I do think it's one of the like core tenets of our show. Right. That we've built
0: upon, right? And that, and finding a restaurant in the end of the world. (laughs) Episode two, always gets forgotten. Always gets forgotten. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's good. That's good. Bob. Yeah. Someday it will be nice to go through and actually define what this show is about. You know, it would be nice. It would be real nice. Yeah. <laughs> All right, shall I sing us in? Please. All right. Karl Marx in the sky. LeVar Burton can fly twice as high. Oh man, I don't have any more books. Uh oh, God, the giver, yeah. And hunger games its dystopian
0: rainbow. <laughs> I like that was like that
1: did he? I was not prepared. As long as I start off with Karl Marx in the sky. He's not even a dystopian guy. He's just uh... a <laughs> but it's always fun to start with Karl Marx flying high in the sky.
0: <laughs> it's just an image to work off of, you know? Yeah. Um, Bob, I think it's for you. This week you got one for us? Yeah, I do. Um, I tend to not go with books. So I don't know if that's out of the bounds of dystopian rainbow, but I'm the one I've got is a TV show. And I'm going to go right back to those colorblind years of the 1990s. And this is a TV show that Dave and I, I think we really loved this show growing up. It is a show. You know the one I'm talking about, Dave?
1: Uh, All I can think of is Mr. Bean right now, but I don't think he lived (laughs) in a dystopia. (laughs) The
0: show is called Sliders. Oh wow, Sliders. Yeah. Well, main actor actor Jerry O'Connell, is that right? Oh yeah. Nice. And nobody, yes, so. nobody else of note. Nobody. I think the professor might have been semi-famous.
1: Was Terry Hatcher on that show? No, she was on she was too busy doing the new Superman, Lois and Clark. That's
0: right. Yeah, so Sliders, basically like these four kind of friends or they're they're like connected in some way they, you know, like Jerry O'Connell's character, Quinn Mallory, I believe was his name. It's coming back. (laughs) Uh, Maybe him and the professor find these like wormholes or like create wormholes to different dimensions and universes, right? Yeah. You know, I can't remember if it's like different universes. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Different universes. That's right. So there's like all these parallel universes. And it's always like the world they slide into is like slightly different in these like weird ways or like terrifying ways. And I like, and they're all, they're trying to just like some, something happens and like, they can't slide for a while. So they have to live in that world and get into an adventure, but then they slide again and they're always just trying to get back home. Yeah. And I, 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 you know, I guess it's a dystopia because, you know, in this world, they invented that. And now they're lost in this, these universes. I love that idea, though, of all these parallel universes. And this was the first time I had ever thought of that. And I think that's an idea in science fiction and probably in science as well. And so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I haven't watched it in 20 years, but loved it growing up, Dave. How about yourself? Yeah. Oh, man.
1: I mean, it kind of brings me back to Quantum Leap with Scott Bakula. Like, that has the same premise where he is like using like some type of machinery to like leap from body to body. He's actually like inhabiting another person's body. And I'm pretty sure it's on the same planet. I think it's planet Earth, but he goes from like body to body for some reason with his like ghost friend or holo hologram friend al but i will say that if you want a reboot of like parallel universing and how like where it's gone where it's come to like over the last 20 years i i highly recommend watching rick and morty i feel like Mm. um nice there there's some really weird episodes and some really bad episodes but there's some also really just like amazing like i like playing around with the idea of parallel universes and what what it means and how like people can operate in that, and I f- it feels like a lot more honest than just like sliding around and having a ball with you know your best buds. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Remember when they went to commercial break or something? They go like
1: sliders, sliders.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: I do. <laughs> uh nice, Bob. Thanks for bringing us back. Absolutely, a, a classic. Uh, well.
0: well want to sign us? We out? better
1: go. We better go. Oh yeah. Um. Yep. Get us at Dave Peachtree at Gmail. Thriving underscore in underscore dystopia on Instagram. You can get Bob at bmaze Nineteen on the Twitterverse, and of course, thrivingdystopia.com for all your TID needs. TID. All right, Bob. Well, love you a lot, and we'll catch you on the flippity-flip.
0: Sliders. Sliders. <laughs> nice.
1: What's up, Driving Crew? Bob and Dave want to take a second to thank you for lending them your ears. They also want to thank the artists for making everything a little more beautiful. The intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford. Our audio is edited by the consummate and dexterous Nadir Cheyetch. Web design by Chris the Mixer Sawyer. And of course, visual art is by the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine. And finally, our new outro song is
0: Bashful by Ketza. See you next week.